Turn with me, please, to Psalm 34. You ever had an experience in which you trusted God for a little while, but it seemed that he wasn't doing anything, so you took matters into your own hands and made a fool of yourself? Well, that's the experience that David had and the incident that forms the background to this psalm. We find the background for us in the superscription, the words right before the first verse. They read a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. In the Hebrew Bible, the superscriptions that we have before the first verses of several of our psalms are actually the first verse of the Hebrew Bible and therefore should be read as part of an integral part of the psalm. The incident referred to is recorded for us more thoroughly in 1 Samuel chapter 21. You may remember David's rise to power. It began with his triumph over Goliath. Then he became a war hero uh, in the Israelite army. And he became so uh, valiant and successful of a, of a soldier that the women of Israel started chanting, Saul kills his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Well, Saul didn't like this very much. He became jealous and angry and chased David away. As a matter of fact, he tried to take David's life, and David spent a number of years running from Saul. The first place he fled to was the city of Gath, one of the Philistine capitals. The king of Gath is referred to here by his uh, title, Abimelech. He's referred to in 1 Samuel 21 by his personal name, Achish. Well, when Achish saw David coming, he said to his men, Isn't this the war hero of the Israelites, of whom the women sing, Saul kills his thousands, but David his ten thousands. David quickly realized that it's not too good for a, a war hero to be in his enemy's city, the, the people of whom he has killed ten thousands. It doesn't fare too well for you in that kind of uh, circumstance. And he figured he better do something quick to escape with his life, so he, he played like he was, was insane. He started drooling and letting the saliva dribble down his beard, began scribbling on the walls, and in other ways acting insane. Well, his ploy worked, and Achish thought he was insane, kicked him out of the city, thought he was no threat any longer, and chased him away lest his insanity inflict others. Well, David penned the words to this, to this psalm after he had thus escaped from the Philistines' grasp. And as we'll see, there's some indications in the psalm that he realizes that he really did make a fool of himself in his, by his actions. He came to realize, as we'll see in the psalm, that his steps were really unnecessary and they were even wrong to, to uh, use that kind of deceit. Let's look at the psalm. Verses 1 to 3 constitute a praise of God and a call for others to join in that praise. Verses 4 to 7 tell us of the historical background, that which led David to want to praise God. And then verses 8 to 22 tell us uh, instruction that David wants us to learn as a result of his experiences and what he learned through what he went through. Let's look at the first paragraph, first of all, verses 1 to 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. 
Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Well, what jumps out at me, first of all, here is he says, I will praise the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I don't know about you, but that's hard for me to do. One incident that comes to mind, it's uh, probably because it's repeated, it's what happens at our home oftentimes in the evening. I come home in the evening, I often have something I want to do, sit and talk with my wife or read a book or look at the newspaper or do some project. But first of all, we have to get the kids to bed. Now, Allison's not so, so bad, though when I tell her it's time to get out of the bath, she inevitably turns the other way and plops on her belly and wiggles and squirms trying to elude my grasp. But Mike is a bit more difficult. He just doesn't understand that I want to hurry and get it all over with. First, we have to bathe him, then get him dressed, and then it's, how about two cheese and two crackers and a glass of milk and a plate and a napkin? Because it's been a whole hour since dinner. And then we go to brush his teeth, and of course, he wants to brush his teeth first. And in the middle of it, where there, there are all sorts of games he wants to play and stories he wants to tell me. And then we get that through. I think it's time for bed. And he says, well, can we act out a Bible story and have a prayer time together? Well, you know, how can a good Christian parent turn that kind of thing down? Say, so, okay. So we act out a Bible story. And then he wants to read a book. And we have to settle that one way or another. Finally get in the bed. Well, how about scratching my back for just a minute? Say, okay. Scratch his back. Well, how about... One more glass of water and then that's going to be all. He just doesn't understand that I want to get all this over with quickly. How can I praise God continually when, he, when I have to put up with this night after night? Well, my problem is that I want to push my plans. David found, as we'll see in the psalm here, that he could praise God continually when he came to realize that God was always with him. And God was in control, enabling him to do and accomplish all that he wanted him to do. And it's only when I stop pushing my plans, insisting in my way, that I find that I can trust God, that he is in control, enabling what he wants to be accomplished to come to pass. It's only then that I can praise him continually. Well, David says, I, says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord, he says. What does it mean to make your boast in something? Well, it's the excitement and the pride that a teenager has over a hot rod. Or the excitement that a man has when his favorite football team squeaks by and wins an important victory. Or the excitement that a housewife might have in finding a super bargain sale. David says, I will make my boast in the Lord. That's what I will get excited about. Because he's realized that though he has things that he could get excited about, such as his victory over Goliath, all the acclaim, you know, it's, it'd be nice to have all the women singing songs about you all over the country. Or the fact that he's been anointed king and, and eventually will reign as king over Israel. He could get excited about those things and boast in them. He says, no, I will make my boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it, that I make my boast in the Lord, and they will rejoice. Why do the humble rejoice at this? Well, they rejoice because the humble are people who have nothing else to boast in besides the Lord. They don't have any status. They have not accomplished things like David has. 
And therefore, that's the only thing they have to boast in, their relationship with God. But as they hear David say this, they, they rejoice because they realize, and it's affirmed to them, that God really is the only important thing anyway. Now, you might feel like you're a big nothing in the world. No status, no sparkling personality, no achievements or accomplishments. And yet you can take heart too and rejoice along with the humble of David's day. Because that which really is important and worthy of getting excited about is our relationship with God. That's what lasts. That's what fulfills and satisfies. And so David calls us to boast with him. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. That which led David to want to praise God is recorded for us in verses 4 to 7, which tell for us the historical background of this psalm. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. David said, I sought God's help. Now, it may appear to us from reading uh, 1 Samuel 21 that David acted totally apart from faith. That's what it looks like to me. And yet David said, even though I may not have done what was exactly right. I was seeking God's help. I was looking to him to deliver me, even through my foolish behavior, through trying to deceive Achish that I was insane. Even yet, I was still looking to God and seeking his help. And that should be an encouragement to us because we see from that that God is not limited to help us only when we are worthy of his help. There are many times in which we feel unworthy. Well, I've sinned, I've rebelled against him, I've done something I know that's wrong, and I've done it again and again. Or you might experience, I've, it's been days since I've really prayed to God or spent any time reading the Bible and finding out what he has to say to me. I just don't feel worthy. I don't feel I can come to him and ask him for his help. Now, we can be encouraged here because God did not limit himself to help David only when David had measured up to some perfect standard. Even when David was doing what looked very dubious to us, God was still available. And as we seek him and turn to him, he wants to help us. He desires to do so. David speaks of that help in a twofold way in verses 4, to six, four and 6. In verse 4, he talks about his, his internal deliverance. He delivered me from all my fears, everything inside, all the anxieties. He gave me a real peace of mind. In verse 6, he says that God delivered him externally. He saved me out of all uh, my troubles. He delivered me from the external problems that I have. Now, verse 5 is a little bit, looks a little bit difficult they looked to him and were radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. We want to know who the they are. It appears that David is generalizing and saying, not only me, but other people who have sought the Lord also have experienced that we have all looked to God and our faces became radiant. By looking to him in the midst of problems, all the gloom and doubt and despair, the pessimism, 
sense of defeat have vanished. And instead, our faces have become radiant with joy and confidence and exuberance because of what we knew about God. Looking to God may change your circumstances. It did with David here. But many times it doesn't. But one thing that looking to God does is it changes your attitude because you see things in a proper perspective. It's like doing an accounting of your financial status. Suppose, and this might uh, take some uh, supposition for, for some of you, but suppose that you go down, you go back home and you set out all your bills on your desk and you look at your bills, $100, $500, $1,000 here, $50 here, $200 here, and you stack them up and you have $3,000 worth of bills. That's probably not too hard to suppose. But you say, how can I handle this? What can I do? But then, here's where it may take a little extra belief, but suppose that you look at your financial assets and you count up how much money you have in the bank, in your checking account, your savings account, and you say, I have $200,000 there. Well, $3,000 worth of bills looks bad, but if I have $200,000 in the bank, well, I think I can handle $3,000 worth of bills. Puts it in perspective when you see the total picture. In the same way, looking to God puts things in perspective. You might have circumstances that are very hard for you, things that look threatening. And yet when you look to Him, you see things in the big, with the big picture and you realize that though you might have troubles, nevertheless, you have a relationship with the living God You have one person, the most important person in the universe who loves you and accepts you totally without reservation. You have his presence with you. You have his power to enable you to find joy and satisfaction and fulfillment, peace of mind in the midst of any circumstance. You have purpose and meaning in life that transcends all of the temporary things that that people on this earth pursue. And therefore, as you look to him, Though you may have trouble, your face becomes radiant. I experienced this very thing myself recently. Earlier this fall, I was allowing myself to become very uh, troubled for a while over my uh, job pressures. One of my responsibilities of the church is to handle general administrative uh, duties. And it's easy sometimes for some things to think, well, if I don't do it, nobody's going to do it. And there was a period where I was feeling the the burden of pressure and thinking, well, there's just too many people that that have needs that that are unmet and have problems that need to be satisfied, too many loose ends that I have to to tie up and too many things to juggle. And on top of that have been the financial burdens and pressures we've been experiencing this fall. And I was feeling anxious over this. But then I, as David did, looked to the Lord. And it totally... uh, altered my perspective on the whole thing because I realized that though I'm responsible to be faithful in my duties, it's not my responsibility to make sure every aspect of the church runs smoothly and everybody's happy. God's the boss here, not me. It's his responsibility to take care of these needs. And I realized as I looked to him that, that though there may be financial pressures, he's the boss, he's in control. He could relieve them in a moment, but he apparently has uh, some purposes in mind to teach me and others to walk by faith and not 
always have to see where the money is or where it's coming from. David says, I look to the Lord and I found deliverance in my situation from my fears, from my troubles. And you can too. No matter what things are bothering you, whether it's your job pressures or financial uh, straits, marital conflicts, pressures in a, uh, in a relationship, depression or doubt, whatever it is, David says, you too can look to the Lord and find deliverance. Your face can become radiant with confidence and joy and peace as you see things in a true perspective. And he says this is true because, verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. He says that God is right here with us. And the angel of the Lord, if you study out that term in the Old Testament, appears to be the Lord Jesus Christ as he appeared before his incarnation uh, as an angel, as the angel of the Lord. He says God is with us in the midst of the problems. And here I think David is implying that he realized that the deception that he, uh, that he uh, went through at Achish was really unnecessary. He realized, first of all, that running away from Saul to the enemy territory was unnecessary because God's angel was there camping around him, there to protect him. And then feeling like he had to resort to deception and trickery was, was unnecessary because God was with him. You might think of the story in, in uh, 2 Kings uh, chapter 7, uh, chapter 6, with Elisha and his servant. They woke up one morning in a small village and they were surrounded by the Syrian army. It was antagonistic to the Israelites at that time. And Elisha's servant says, Master, we will perish. What will we do? And Elisha says, Don't worry. Don't fret. There are more of us than there are of them. And his servant looked around and says, You've got to be kidding. There are only two of us. There's a whole army out there. And Elisha prayed, Oh, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And the, the eyes of the servant were opened and he saw behind the Syrian army a whole army of angels of God fiery and bright and strong and he realized that Elisha was right there are more of us than there are of them God can protect us and he delivered Elisha and his servant at that time God wants us to know the same things true of us there are more of us than there are of them no matter what the problem the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. He's right here with you. Nothing has taken him by surprise. There are no sneak attacks by the enemy that catch him unawares. But he's here, present with you, ready to deliver you. Encamps around all those who fear him. All it takes is that you love him and trust him. Well, verses 8 to 22 tell us of the instructions tell us of what David wants us to learn through his experience. The section falls in three parts. Verses 8 to 10 are a call to trust God. Verses 11 to 14 are a description of what the fear of the Lord is. And verses 15 to 22 tell the consequences of the fear of the Lord and the consequences of lacking the fear of the Lord. First of all, look at verses 8 to 10, the call to trust God. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. 
For to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Now, in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, there are four basic words for man. And the one used for man here is one that's not one of the usual ones. It's the word gever, which really means a a warrior, a mighty man. And it's strange to us because we would naturally say how blessed is the warrior, the soldier, who has self-confidence, who has courage, who can go out and tackle any situation. But David says instead, how blessed is the hero who realizes he's weak, who realizes that he needs God's help and he trusts in him. He realized that he was a mighty hero at one point, conquering David, killing tens of thousands of the Philistines. And yet he had come to a place where he realized that he was weak and he needed God for all of life. The main point of this paragraph is David wants us to really trust God, to experience him, not just to talk about him. Notice the different words he uses to describe it. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Take refuge in him. Verse 9, fear the Lord. Verse 10, seek him. What he's saying is don't just talk about God. Don't just make him a, a... a theological abstract. Don't just intellectualize about God. Just as a man who is hungry might talk about food he has on the shelf, it doesn't do him any good unless he tastes it. And just as a man who is in danger might say, well, I know a good hiding place. It doesn't do him any good unless he runs there and takes refuge there. David is saying in the same way, taste the Lord, experience him. Don't just talk about it. I find for myself that it's easy for me to trust God in certain situations because there's no other way. But in many of the situations of life, it's easy to just kind of glide through, not think too much about God, not think too much about trusting Him. It's easy to talk about casting all your cares upon Him. But how And how easy it is also to forget about actually doing that when we feel financial pressure or we feel uh, tensions in the job or a relationship that we need wisdom for and we're upset about. David is saying, don't just play games, but do it. Don't just talk about God, but experience Him and trust Him. I knew of a man one time who was the kind who always liked to have his finger in everything. And he had a little Volkswagen car and, and took it to a a repair shop one time and had several things wrong with it so I had to come back. At this repair shop, they had a white line and you're supposed to drive up to the line, park your car, stay, stay behind the line and the mechanic would take it and, and drive it in front of the line and fix the car. Well, this guy would do that but then he'd take a look and he'd kind of wander up slowly and pretty soon he'd be right under the hood with the mechanic uh, looking, at the, looking at the engine, offering suggestions, Asking, now, why are you doing this? It just drove the mechanic batty. And finally, one day, the man drove in and the mechanic said, Are you a betting man? And this fellow said, Yeah, sure. What do you want to bet? And he said, he took out a piece of chalk and drew a circle on the, on the garage floor. He says, I bet you $100 that you can't stay in that circle while I work on your car. 
The guy says, $100? You're kidding. Sure, I'll do that. And so he goes and stands in the circle. The mechanic looks back at him. He goes over and he takes a sledgehammer. And he goes over to the car, looks at the guy and smashed down one of the fenders. He looks back and the guy is smiling. He can't understand it. And it kind of makes him mad because he wanted to get at this guy. So he takes his sledgehammer, walks around the front and smashes the hood of the car. Now he looks and this guy is giggling and can hardly control himself. And this really makes his mechanic mad. So he gets his sledgehammer and smashes the roof, breaks the windshield, and he looks and this guy is just dying laughing. He can hardly contain himself. And he goes over and says, and he grabs him by the collar and says, Look, buddy, I'm over there ruining your car and here you are laughing. What's the deal? And the guy says, While you were hitting my car, I stepped out of the circle three times and you didn't even know it. (laughs) This guy was playing games while something important was happening. And you know, you and I can do the same thing. Our lives can be, can be in a process of being demolished and destroyed. And yet we're just playing games. We can just talk about God, about how great He is and how able He is to take care of our problems, and yet never go to Him with those problems. Never really turn them over to Him. And David is saying here, Seek the Lord. Taste of Him and see that He is good. Take refuge in Him. Fear him, you his saints. And he says, if you do, he says, those who, those who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. He says, even young lions do lack and suffer hunger. In other words, young lions who are symbols of strength eventually are going to poop out. You cannot be self-sufficient and totally adequate. But those who trust the Lord, he says, shall not lack any good thing. Oh, you might not get everything you want, but everything you really want, deep down, everything you really need, God is going to give you if you trust Him. David questions in verse 12, Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? In other words, do you really want the good life? He says, in fear God, respond to him. God's not out to make you religious and miserable. He's not an uptight, fuddy-duddy who is trying to make your life restricted and boring and dull and drab. He wants to give you the good life, the real good life. And David says, taste of him, respond to him, trust him in life. Don't just talk about it. Don't just play games, but do it. And you'll find that God is able to fulfill all your deepest desires and wants. Our time is running out. Let me just point out a couple of other things. In verses 13 and 14, he says, The fear of the Lord includes this. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. You don't have to cheat people. You don't have to do what I did and resort to trickery to protect yourself. You can trust God. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Part of what he's saying here is that the fear of the Lord is not just praying 
It's not just trusting him in him for certain things, but it also includes the response of faith so that we take him seriously and we actually practice what he calls us to do. We put it into practice in life. And then in verses 15 to 22, he tells us of the end, the end process of fearing him versus the consequences of not fearing him. He says, for those who fear God, God is going to care for you. But if you don't, you will suffer. And the very thing you are hoping to, to give you life will be your death. And let's just read these verses. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. 